five, four, three, two, one. I'm John Miglosh for the Wisconsin DMA and the International Society for Strategic Marketing. And if you haven't heard by now, in Milwaukee, we're going to have a meetup. And, but we're also planning later, uh, like in two weeks, I think, in October, early October, we're going to have a, an online meetup. And as I've been telling you, one of the printers that came the last couple times said, these things are a gold mine. Uh, this is one of the best things I do, she said. You can't get it. You can't meet this quality of people anywhere else, no matter what convention you would go to, no matter what. And I agree. Great people. We have some great, great supporters in WDMA, uh, the number one direct marketing association in the world. So if you're in the Milwaukee, Chicago area, drive up. Uh, we just had one of the one of the great mailers of Wisconsin register. So that was that was great. Somebody had always I've always wanted to meet somebody from that company and they they uh, they hadn't attended anything. So this is good. You know, it's very, very, very exciting. And let's go over to the fun part. Okay, and here we go. It's a new dawn, it's a new, new day. day, it's a new life. So this is a Pepsi commercial. But it's almost empty. Empty. Oh well. It's a new Okay, so anyway, uh, Pepsi announced. Let's go over to the uh, news and sports section. Pepsi announced that it's going to have 100% recycled bottles. And, um, you know, what I don't understand is why don't people really go after it and say, this is 100%, we make Pepsi out of 100% reused water. <laughs> <laughs> because you know it is. Anybody who knows anything about the water cycle knows that we we don't invent water, we don't manufacture water, we recycle water. So all the water is recycled, and we're good at it. And uh, you know, it might make people a little reluctant to drink it. But the fact is, we are all recycle water recyclers, and so is the atmosphere. So. You know, recycling is a funny deal. You know, mostly the best thing we should do is take the recycled plants, which make up our the bulk of our fuel. I know people don't want to face that, but we take solar. We've taken solar energy and compressed it over time and made coal, gas, oil, and now we burn that. We take that solar energy and convert it in a nice dense form into heat and electricity and other things. And then we also make plastic bottles out of it. And there's a lot of energy in those. And we could burn those too, which puts the CO2 back in the air. There's no more CO2 on Earth now than there ever was. It's just in different places. And we're moving it around. And there's some great theories coming out on why that doesn't harm the environment nearly as much as plastic, eating plastic, and throwing it in the ocean. Okay, so enough of that. <laughs> okay, here's from My Total Retail, the robot and the human. Okay, and the robot says, you are one in a million. And the human says, oh, wow, thanks. And then the robot says, correction, you are one of a million. <laughs> Yeah, okay. So, uh, Steve Kleintobe says, 
big data is ambivalent. And, you know, you've heard me say this before, but it's always nice to see somebody else writing about it. Since I started writing about it in the 90s, about how big data wouldn't save us, I did an article called Drowning in Data. And ironically, he has a similar metaphor. A picture, a picture a giant robot with a streaming flow of data flowing from its mouth. Marketers hoot and cheer and slosh around in a lake and they, until they realize the stream won't stop. It becomes a lake, a sea, and an ocean. And the marketers are lost, drowning among the waves while the robot continues relentlessly and dumb and very ambivalent. Right. And, uh, and, and Steve's contention is that we're losing our humanity in, uh, in letting the, the math decide our marketing. And there's some truth to that, although Scott Adams has pointed out that if you let a robot come up with several headlines and then split test them, you can find out how the humans react, except in digital advertising where at least a third, two-thirds, no, something like that, a third of the traffic is bots and two-thirds of it is malicious. So you might get a wrong answer with that kind of testing. Better to test it with direct mail. I don't know of a single direct mail robot or a bot that reads their mail and decides whether to keep it or throw it away. You have to have a human decision maker for that, which means that not only does mail get delivered, get delivered to the address that we intend, get seen, get encountered and interacted with by a decision maker, but it also avoids the bots. Who knew? Another plus for mail. Okay, so anyway, um, Steve says that we're losing our humanity. Brands have removed the whiteboards in favor of automated tools. And I don't know if you can see back here. Let's try zooming out with the cam. But we still, can you see? No, it's just out of, out of shot. But we still have our whiteboard. <laughs> and we still use it. And uh, so he says the tech consultants thumb their buttons and pull their levers but the creatives are sad moping around the lunchrooms. And, you know, I've seen that in, in uh, even in direct mail design, especially catalog design, where people get nutty about square inch analysis. And what they don't realize is that it's a page, and beyond a page, it's a spread. And beyond a spread, it's a catalog. It's a story. It's, it's an in whole encounter. And so uh, you... you what I advocated to most of my clients is that you only allow 90% of the, of the page to be used for sales, and you can goof around with that with your square inch analysis, but you need at least 10% on average. It doesn't have to be, it could be one page in every 10, should be editorial or talking about why your company is special or why your people are special or why your products are special, but always leave room for the branding right okay so humans like who like sameness robots humans like novelty and surprise and i like that i think that was good data won't help you figure out what will break through with people so what will creativity actually like i said you know you can you could have <laughs> headline writer robots and then you could you know, who needs, yeah, who needs copywriters? Anyway, so the first principle he has is trust your gut. And, um, you know, that's a little dangerous, but it's it certainly is a component. Scott Adams was writing yesterday about how, uh, about how 
we use confirmation bias to evaluate the vaccinations. And I said to my wife, but just because your bias is confirmed, even anecdotally, does not mean it's wrong. Confirmation bias doesn't add much to the pie, okay? But it doesn't take away from the pie either. It's just truth is truth. And how we come to truth is mostly by beating our head into walls. Uh, Anyway, ask yourself emotional questions. And I think the word there is operative, is emotional. Marketing, now here's one of I Steve and I part company. Marketing is just providing answers to some intensely human questions. I would argue that marketing is mostly trying to guess the future. But he gets to that, which is great. Um, imagination, creativity, it's, is the imaginative bridge between the boring of today and the sparkling new fun of tomorrow see and he does get to predict the future so i guess we're back in company now so robots are best humans and robots are best together and if you ever read my book which i usually have a copy around here someplace it basically says that the best marketers are wizards that also look at data and if you were an it people what you want to do person you want to get the best data in front of the wizard that you can because wizards aren't omniscient, data does does help, but about 80% of the correlations I see in big data are spurious, are silly, stupid. You'd never think that they would make any sense causally in the world, but they turn up mathematically in your AI tool. Now, we have the virtue of seeing those correlations in our, our system. Most modeling systems just crank them out and no one looks at them which is why we beat them for the most part. Give us the same data and we will win because we look at what's going on and most of this other stuff is nuts. Okay, let's go over to Ritson. Uh, and what are we at for time? Oh, not so good. Okay, Ritson's got an article. Tom Car- Carriage's prices aren't a ripoff. They're what the market will pay. Excellent, excellent article. And what he basically says is that there's this, there's this pub called The Hand and Flowers it's about 30 miles west of London, which surprisingly in around London, if you've ever been there, you know, the British have done a really excellent job of keeping villages contained and keeping farmland around. They knew that farmland was precious. And so they ha- so when you get a little ways out of a city, you, uh, you can walk right across the street from the row houses of a village is the farmland. And so by the time you get 30 miles west of London, you're in very rural looking country. And their roads are tiny, and so you can't get there very. It takes a long time. It might take you an hour to get there or two out of London. But anyway, so the Hand and Flowers was opened. Uh, it's a pub, and within a year, the pub had won a Michelin star for brilliant cooking of simple British staples. And you know, again, if you've been to Britain, you want to maybe go to ta- Chinatown for for dinner uh, because British staples are kind of common. So he's elevated them, and he got two Michelin stars. And then in 2011, just six years after opening, he got the English Restaurant of the Year. But if you've been in an English pub, and that's kind of where we're meeting, we're meeting in an Irish pub, but it's a pub, there's not a lot of seats. And so he got in trouble by this guy, Guy Woodward, who took issue with his prices because he's charging $87 for sirloin steak. And, you know, that's like $100 U.S., more or less pretty close and um the 
the the critic decided that was too much for a steak. And the mistake that uh, Carriage made was t- saying that he buys good steak. And what he should have said was, look, this pub is small. We only have, you know, room for 16 or 40 or whatever it is, guests a night. And we can't, we can't keep it, you know, we, we, we have reservations out for two years. What do you want us to do, right? You're not buying a steak. You're buying a seat at the table. And the tables are full. So you got to pay a little extra. And that's why we're charging it. But there's an excellent pricing theory. And at, toward the end, as always, Ritson gets into some theory. And he basically says, you know, people who mark up from their cost are missing the point. Uh, he says, I have a... I have a, a fancy German keyboard, probably cost him three or $400. He says, I could probably sell it on eBay right now for, for $20 and generate revenue. But it cost me more than that. So that's no, any idiot can do that. He said, but what if I can take that $200 keyboard or pound keyboard and sell it for $500 and make a profit? Now, that's really something. A rare thing, an important thing, a difficult thing, a marketing thing. Any nitwit can sell something for revenue, but making money from the sale, lots of money, is a different matter. Exactly right. And if you're a real marketer, profit is our totem. So how do we do that? Anyway, and you can get into price wars. I've told the story before, but I'm going to go to it again, uh, about Dominic's Finer Foods. Bob Meyer taught me about pricing. And uh, Cub Foods had invaded several markets in the United States, and taken out the weakest competitor and taken significant market share from even the market leaders. And what they did was they came into town and they would, you know, put up their huge box stores and they would, uh, and they would do price advertising and they would take the competitors price ads and the most, the average grocery store ad in at the, in the day was generating co-op money. So Procter and Gamble would pay you for the ad. So you could actually make a little money on that. By putting ads in the newspaper, you could you could you could generate more profit probably by by putting you know Tide or whatever Crest toothpaste in an ad, and so each item would get its little box in the ad, and you'd tell Procter and Gamble that you did it, and they would pay for it, and you'd sell some more Crest, or you'd make money on the coupons that were in the ad, and so Cub would put these ads up on the wall, and they would X out in red the the Dominic's finer food uh, price, for example, and write the Cub Foods price on the ad, and um, and they would come into a market and discount about six percent below current pricing, and the average consumer, careful consumer like my wife, can tell a two percent price differential. So they were way, you know, everybody said, "Whoa, Cub is really a good deal," and so then the other. The other grocery stores, so Cub comes in 6% below, and the other grocery stores say, well, we could probably afford 4%. Now, is, now there's still the 2% differential, still a few cents, you know. And, you know, I once bought a can of Campbell's Soup for one penny less. It was a can of generic, and it tasted terrible. My kids, my wife was sick at the time, and I was taking care of the kids. Anyway, so then, the, but then, the, but then the, the competitors say, we can't stay at 4%, we only make 2% uh, margin a year, uh, or profit a year. So then they go up to 2%, and then Cubs goes up to 4 And then the competitors go up to 1% below what they used to be, and Cub goes up to 
three. And then finally they go back and Cub is still 2% and they go out of business. And that's what's, what happened in market after market. And so Bob Meyer came in and he said, well, we're going to do, do two things mainly. One thing we're going to do is we're not going to discount fully 4%. We're going to match Cub item for item on all the commodity items. We're going to go to 6% or whatever Cub goes to. We're going to match them on milk and eggs and all the things that people regularly buy at the grocery store. Now, he said, before, and that, but that's only at stores that are immediately in the vicinity of Cub. The stores that are way out in a different neighborhood, we're going to leave our prices just the way they always were. And in the middle, we'll, we'll make some concessions. Then he said, in the middle-priced items, we'll, we'll go down a little. And in the commodities, we'll go up a little. So our net pricing will stay this. I mean, in our uh, condiments and other things, in the non-commodities, we'll go up a little. And and so we will. And so then what we'll do is we'll also convince people that we are better than Cub. And so this is an ad that he ran in the Chicago Tribune full page. A full page. You know how big a full page ad is? I mean, it's like the strawberry was, you know, like 36 inches high by by 24 inches wide or something. I mean, it was huge. I'll never forget the strawberry. And then he had a broccoli, and he also had a, a head of lettuce. And what he basically said was, in all this unreadable copy, but the unreadable copy is perfectly readable when it's a full-page newspaper ad. And so what he said was, we take the best care. We care more, and the best place to notice it is in our produce, but there's other places. Well, guess what? Cub went under. Cub shut shut the door. <laughs> it was the only market where Cub got defeated was in Chicago. And it was because of price theory, and it goes right along with what Ritson said. Tell them why. Tell them why your prices are higher. You know, and pricing is not just an art, right? And not just a science, but it's a marketing task that is often forsaken. Have a great day. Like and share. Your friends will know you're smart. Bye-bye.